welcome to A Reason for Hope. It's a nice, kind of cool Monday. <laughs> nice and it feels kind of rainy outside, but I don't know that we had any rain today. But uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, this is a Bible answer program called A Reason for Hope. We uh, take your questions uh, live online <clears throat> every weekday at 5 o'clock, and there are several ways for you to be able to join us and actually follow along and ask questions. First of all, I want you to check out uh, our Facebook uh, page on ccftucson.org, and of course, you can also follow along uh, <clears throat> on our YouTube channel. We have a YouTube channel called A Reason for Hope, and of course, we'd love for you to subscribe and hit that notification bell so you know whenever we live stream our services, especially this program. And of course, our handle on YouTube is A Reason for Hope, 546. Also, follow Pastor Scott Richards' <clears throat> Twitter feed. You can even ask questions there when he's in studio fielding your questions. You can uh, feel free to follow him and ask questions right there. And his handle is at ScottR4H, so be sure to follow him there. We also have a website where you can go and hit the Watch Live tab, and you can actually follow the services. You can even chat on our own little platform there where you can ask questions uh, within the confines of our own services. And we also have our own <clears throat> church app. And if you go to all the app stores, that's Apple, uh, Google, Roku, Amazon, uh, all those platforms also um, stream our services on our app. And if you don't want to engage online in real time and you want to just kind of send a question covertly, privately, you're more than welcome to do that at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questions all spelled out, for hope, all spelled out at gmail.com. So in studio with us, we have uh, Pastor Peter Martin. How you doing? Doing good, man. Happy good. to be here. Good, good, good. So Peter's uh, joining us today, filling in for uh, a someone who's celebrating an anniversary. <clears throat> Pastor Scott's celebrating his, he and Pam are celebrating their anniversary. I think it's today, isn't it? I don't know. You, you. Yeah, know I'm not. I'm not sure the actual date, but um, we are filling in for people. <laughs> <laughs> I know that much. <laughs> and of course, uh, uh, to my right here is uh, Pastor Bo Olette. He's been on the program obviously many times, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, just a great all-around uh, guy. And uh, it's been kind of really neat to hang in the office with you guys. And uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's great to be on a reason for hope. And um, you know, it's kind of neat. It's a neat staple for us. Uh, you know, we've been doing this show for a long, long time. And uh, I can think I was talking to someone today and I, I uh, we, you know, 30, it's been 30 years of doing radio out here in Tucson. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, so we've always done radio as far as a ministry goes in the church. And uh, it's just neat to see how it kind of morphs into new technology. And me and Peter were kind of looking at what you were doing with all the cool graphics, and we were kind of impressed. Yeah, man. it was really cool. Yeah, yeah <laughs> we were like, whoa. But I'm easily impressed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> All I need is a little flashlight. Click it on. He's got a laser pointer, and I'm it was <laughs> awesome. Into you. Yeah, chasing yeah. it around. <laughs> yeah, but excited to get you know see what's uh, the questions are going to be today, and uh, you know they could obviously do that through the Facebook and the YouTube mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. the website and questions for hope yeah. at gmail.com. And it's really neat because it's like a live interaction. So rather than calling in on a radio and having to like voice your question on a radio station, you can actually, you know, as long as you're on these platforms, you can just leave a question right in chat and we will take your question. We'll put it on, on the screen and, 
and do our best to go through God's Word and uh, give a, a great application to that uh, question. Yeah. So before we start, uh, Bo, would you uh, give us the privilege of praying and asking yeah. the Lord to be with us here today? Yep. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity, and we do pray that you would speak through us and use us. We thank you for your grace, your goodness. We look forward to the blessed hope, the great glorious appearing of our God and Savior. And uh, Father, we we um, just want to honor you during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, I was, can I start off, Adrian? Yeah, Okay, please, cool, yeah. man, thanks. Well, um, thanks for that privilege, bro. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> no, but uh, I was at the gym today, and uh, me and a friend were on the treadmill trying to you know, lose some pounds, you know how that goes. <laughs> and, but he asked me a great question and I told him that I would, uh, you know, talk, uh, to you, Peter, about it. <laughs> but, uh, no, Adrian, you and, uh, Peter, you guys could chime in, but, <clears throat> you know, where in the Bible does it actually say you can't have sex before marriage? Yeah, no, it, it is a really good question. And I think when people ask questions like this, they're kind of mistaking a format that the Bible carries with it. The Bible is actually not a moralizing text. So most religious texts are moralizing, meaning that they have broad ethics that they spell out very clearly and definitively. Yeah, right? so what, you're, what you mean by that, I'm going to stop you just mm -hmm. to kind of get some clarity there. Mm -hmm. But what you're saying is that there's some religious books right. out there that, that books is like, by the way, when we say books, that's the more like chill way of talking. Texts. Text sounds very <laughs> academic, <laughs> but uh, you know if you know what we're saying is that you're saying is that religious. There's religious books out there yeah. that are much more of a moral code, right? Right? They give exactly. like a moral code, like and this they're very clear. They're very definitive, right? So if you read the Quran, a lot of it is very moralizing. It's like you shouldn't do this, you should do this. And when most people think about the Bible, they think of like the Ten Commandments: Thou shalt, Thou yeah. shalt not. But you got to understand the vast majority of the Bible is not written like that. That's only like really one small section of the scriptures. What the Bible does instead is it lays out principles and then it illustrates them through stories, right? So it lays out instead what we would call just, just principles and conduct that shape and conform to the way that God created the universe and also conform to his nature and character, right? So in other words, you, you shouldn't expect to see every ethical platform spelled out for you within the scriptures. You should instead look to see what are the principles from which we can derive ethical principles. So a good example of this is there is no text in scripture that says you shouldn't beat your wife. There's none. Does that mean that the Bible is for spousal abuse? Well, no. Instead, you got to look and say, are there ethical, are there principles within the Bible Bible, mm. from which we can derive an ethical principle that would state, I shouldn't beat my wife. Uh, so, for instance, I would look at, in Leviticus 19, uh, you should love your neighbor as yourself, right? So I should take care of my fellow man as I would take care of my own bodily needs. And since I wouldn't want to, in a right state of mind, I wouldn't want to cause harm to myself, I also shouldn't want to cause harm to those that I am claiming I love, right? Which include my spouse. So I could, I could derive this ethic, but it's not spoon-fed to me. Now, sexual ethics are kind of like this as well. There are some that are clearly spelled out, some that aren't. So I'm going to give you the ethic, and then, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm going to give you the principle, and then I'm going to give you actually a place where it is somewhat clearly spelled out for us. So 
the principle of marriage is given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So those of you guys who want to read it on your own time, you can. But Paul is making a principled statement as to why people in the church should not have sex with prostitutes, um, which sounds very obvious to us today. But back in the day, it wasn't so obvious, right? Prostitution was very widely practiced. And the principle that he derives is that marriage is supposed to be a reflection, specifically in this passage, of Christ's love to the church. And when you derive out the principle from there, what you see is that just taking this one principle of sex before marriage, what he's saying is that there is a unity and a oneness that happens within physical intimacy that is supposed to be reflective of a greater intimacy that somebody has emotionally, spiritually, and in a committed sense. And this is reflective of Christ. Jesus does not become, and and again, the picture here of sex is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to the church. That's the picture there, that we become one with God as the Holy Spirit indwells with us in the same kind of way that a man physically becomes one with a woman in the act of sex. That's the argument that Paul makes. And so from there, we can get this principle of why do I commit myself to somebody in the bounds of marriage before I act in a sexual way with them? Well, I need to join with that person in my life before I join with them in my body. Uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he says the monstrosity of sex outside of marriage is that you take one form of intimacy, and that would be sex, and you actually separate it from the higher form of intimacy that it's supposed to be a picture of, which would be commitment and life intimacy. And so we, we do have this principle, and we can see it very clearly within the text of Scripture. However, there is an even more clear and definitive passage mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. So in Exodus chapter 22, verse 16, we're, we're given marital principles given to us in the Old Testament. Now, we don't adhere to all these in the New Testament anymore, but they're still available for us. And like I said, they derive from these broader principles that we can get and that are universal for all believers in, in God. So in Exodus 22, verse 16, it says, If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price to uh, for her to be his wife. So we have consensual sex. You have a guy, meets a girl. She's not betrothed to anybody, right? She's not engaged. She's not in a relationship with right. someone else. They go on a date. They go on a date. They drive up to Lover's Lane. <laughs> they, they pop some wine. You know, this is Israel. They pop some wine. You know, they listen to some Barry White probably. Got know? some figs. <laughs> Got some figs. You know, one thing leads to another. They have intimacy. Well, what's to happen? Well, in verse 17, I mean, I'm sorry, in verse 16, he says he has to pay the bride price. Verse 17, if her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. And you shall not, I mean, I'm sorry, and later on, he talks about how this type of marriage is the only one in the law that cannot be destroyed or gotten rid of via divorce, right? So every other form of marriage, actually, even though divorce is not ideal, divorce is allowable within the old covenant. This is the only type of marriage that is not, there's no divorce allowed, right? So what this principle is showing us is if you have sex with somebody and you're not already committed to them, you better be certain that this is the person you want to spend the rest of your life with because you had to pay a down payment to the dad. And if the dad doesn't like you, he could say, hey, pound sand, man, I'm not going to give my daughter to you. Thanks for the money. And by the way, the bridal price would be in modern day parlance, it'd probably be around 15 to 30 grand. You know, it's not like a small amount of money. So you're paying the dad a lot of money. You know, you're 
pulling out of your inheritance as a son. Yeah. And if the dad doesn't like you, then he kicks you out and you just lose the money. If he does like you, you are now bound to that person forever. You cannot divorce them. Yeah. No matter what. No, at any time ever. No, there is no allowance really? for divorce wow. in a marriage like this. So you break it, you buy it. That's it. <laughs> and that's, but that's the it, principle. How do you respond to the accusations that this is, you know, misogynistic patriarchy and they're selling their daughters? Wasn't really the the the, the idea behind the dowry and so on mm. was because women um, always depended on husbands for their livelihoods, mm. especially since their jobs were predominantly raising the children and so on and, and keepers of the home. If a man were to, and because men could just give them a writ of divorce and just leave, yeah. the dowry was there to protect them, almost like a retirement yeah. sort of idea. Well, there's, there's that, but there's an even simpler principle at play here. So when a man was to marry a woman, the man's family gained a daughter-in-law and she would then become his wife, right? She would take on his last name and they would start producing children that would be a part of that family. And therefore that all the kids that they produce would have an inheritance to the familial land, the ancestral land yeah. within Israel. The family of the daughter loses a daughter. Right? They just they just lost a kid. So that that was the idea. Yeah. And this is this is where I think people might get a little lost. Mm. Um is that today you know, even in my day of growing up, you know, Generation X guy, you know, sex was very detached from family. Yeah. And that's not what Exodus 22 is talking about. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a world where sex and its ramifications very much involved family units. Right. And family structure. Right. And so, you know, playing around with your genitalia you know, meant something. It really had a seriousness to it um, because of the way the world was. Mm. And it's interesting too. It's like some people look at that and they go, well, patriarchy, blah, 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 blah. And they, they get all into this kind of conversation. But let's face it. I mean, the the world was a crazy place yeah. and it is. Yeah. We, it, it, it is a crazy place. Yeah. And when you have incredible war, uh, and tribal wars mm. and swords being pulled out right. and people being stabbed and right. sliced and right. diced right. <laughs> and, and this kind of thing. I mean, that yeah. is that is a world where protection becomes of utmost value. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Where we kind of lose that sight. We lose that today. And, you know, I think it goes even deeper. So yeah. one of the first feminists is, was a woman named Mary Wollstonecraft. Mm -hmm. And she lived in the 1800s, and she was a contemporary with guys like Percy B. Shelley, who was a uh, who was a poet, really famous poet at the time. And they were all a part of kind of this proto-feminist movement. Now, there's a reason why it died out. The reason why the proto-feminist movement died out is because there was really only one notable woman who was a part of it, and this was Mary Wollstonecraft. And there was a bunch of dudes who were a part of it mm -hmm. because the idea of the guys was wow, we could have sex and not have to marry the person and take care of the kids. And the women were like, that kind of sounds good. But then they started getting knocked up and they didn't have anyone to provide for them. That's right. And they're all like, this is a bad idea. And so feminism, that proto-feminist movement died because of that. And it didn't come back until the advent of the pill. 
So there was a reason why it died and a reason why only guys were into it, right? They convinced right. girls that they should be into it. Right. But it was really only dudes yeah, who were into wh- it. Yeah, wh- where, where when you think about when you, and I know we're getting a little deep, but modern feminism is really a product of technology. Right. You know, and that's what you're talking about. Right. This is something, by the way, if you're into these topics, you can listen to Peter and I on our podcast. And we get into way deeper (laughs) Where we really, we take an hour or so and just get into the history of these things. But let's get back to the, so you can do that. It's at uh, Better Pleasure, uh, just Better Pleasure Podcast. You can look up Running Light Podcast on uh, iTunes or SoundCloud or whatever. But Better Pleasure or or Running Light. And you can find Peter and, and uh, my uh, podcast on topics uh, uh, that are related to this subject. But yeah. okay, so the New T- Old Testament gives us the principle that hey, sex is important; can't just mess around with it. Right. Okay. So in the New Testament, what would we? I mean, we got First Corinthians six, six that tells us, hey, it, you know, we we know that we shouldn't just go into prostitutes. Right. And have. But what I've always heard, I think, from people today, even Christians within the Christian culture, mm. um, and, and this is all ages too, is that, well, hey, I am committed. Yeah. You know, if commitment's the principle, mm. then I am committed to this person. I mean, it might not be long, like life yeah. commitment, but I am committed. Yeah. Like, you know, so it's like, hey, you know, is, is that cool? So I like, uh, you know, someone I like listening to is Jordan Peterson. Uh-huh. And uh, he's got this great series on marriage. And I like him because he's this old guy, but he like yells at young people. <laughs> he's, right. like, and, like, he's just like, and he's got this great moment where he's talking about people that have that exact argument. And his first instinct is, do you think you like, are you so wise and smart that you think you know better than thousands of years of your ancestors? He's like, there's a reason why marriage was developed. There's a reason why it had staying power. And there's a reason why it's only been in the last like 100 years that we've been questioning it as an institution. No other culture on earth has ever done that, right? So he's like, do you really believe that you just know better? So just from a standpoint of humility, can you humble yourself just a fraction of a percent and say, maybe my modern ideals (laughs) that I think are so enlightened and wise might be wrong and maybe my ancestors weren't a bunch of drooling idiots, and maybe they developed this thing for for a reason. So he starts there. He's just like, just just humble yourself a little bit and just think, why has this been the case for so long in human history? Why is it a part of every major world religion before you just start toppling it down? But then he, he pushes it a little bit further, and he says, you know, marriage is, and you know, I've been married for seven years. Uh, I believe you just celebrated your 30th anniversary? 29. 29. That's crazy. I know. And, you know, Scott's celebrating his probably, 30th. Yeah, 30th anniversary. We'll tell you, marriage is awesome. It's amazing. It's the best thing. I, I believe it's the best decision I ever made. I think that I can't believe that I get to be married to my wife, that we get mm-hmm. to share our lives together. I love every second of it. But marriage also carries a level of difficulty. It is, it is hard to let your ego go. And to allow your life to be a part of someone else's life, right? That it's not just all about you. Mm. And having the support of my religious community, right? The church that I'm a part of, that I've made myself a part of, and my family is integral to our relationship. And that's why you make a vow before your church community within a church and before your family, because you are showing them 
I'm serious about this relationship and I'm giving you the authority, right? Everyone that is a witness to these vows, I'm giving you the capacity to challenge me, to be a part of our relationship and to challenge me when I start going astray. When you just date someone, you're not really giving people the authority to do that. You're not giving your friends and family the authority to speak into your life. And when you're making dumb decisions within your relationship to tell you, hey, you're making a stupid decision. Maybe don't do that. Or why are you breaking up this person? Right. It puts skin in the game. It makes you accountable before a large community of people. And when people are more honest about why they have resistance to marital vows, that's actually where the resistance comes from. So I've, I've spoken to many, many people, many young people who are resistant to marital vows. And when I push them, either A, it's a woman who has been convinced by her boyfriend that marriage is stupid, right? <laughs> which, is, which is often the case, right? Everyone's like, marriage is the patriarchy. Women naturally want to celebrate their commitment in front of friends and family. Women naturally want to do that. It is the patriarchy that is saying that marriage is out to lunch, that it's dumb. But at any rate, or I'm talking to a guy who thinks it's stupid. At the end of the tactic just to kind of forego the other rules of yeah. marriage. <laughs> it's almost 100% of the time, once you scratch under the surface, it's a person who does not want that level of accountability. Mm. They don't want that level of accountability. They don't want people involved or invested in the relationship. They just want an individualistic romance that's dictated by their own whims and not on the benefit that that relationship could have on their community, right? So me being married to my wife, it doesn't just affect me, right? It does affect my church community, right? We're having kids together. Those kids are being raised in the church community. They're a part of it. The other people that are part of the church, they have to, their kids are going to interact with my kids. And if we're raising them in a terrible fashion, my kids will be a terror to their kids and they're not going to want to be around us, right? What's the if we have divorce rates similar to that of those outside the church? Mm. Um, if the community is that sounding board, yeah. it's, we're, we're there to hold each other accountable, to to encourage one another. Why why is it not working? What's Where have we dropped the ball? I'll tell you. So I was actually just talking to my wife about this today. Um, I have seen more people get divorced in the last two years of biblical counseling than in the previous eight. So I've been bib- counseling biblically for 10 years. And I've seen more people get divorced in the last two than in the the previous eight combined. That's with the focus on marriage counseling, correct? Right. Yeah. And what I'll tell you is that what I've seen is that this germ, this idea, this ideology of I don't need to make commitments to anybody else, I don't need to be accountable, I don't that radical individualism ideology that has been a part of our culture for a long time, it's really starting to crystallize now. And what you hear people say. Is they like if I ask them, hey, does does your family know you guys are having marital difficulties? And in fact, a lot of people that I'm seeing, they're not even from our church, and they're like, well, I don't want to go see a pastor from our church. And I say, why not? And they say, well, it's embarrassing. You know, like I don't want people to know that we're having marital difficulties. What you see is that people are making decisions, and they are not allowing those people who, again, were witness to their vows, encourage them in the commitment that they made. They're not accountable to anybody that disagrees with them. They're only accountable to the dictates of their own conscience. So they say, I don't feel like this is working anymore. So I'm going to surround myself with people that can be a sounding board to that ideology. But I'm certainly not going to talk to someone who might challenge me. How much of that is <clears throat> a subculture within the church of shame and guilt and an unwillingness to talk about sin openly? Mm-hmm. A lot of times marital difficulties is usually revolving around exposing <laughs> sin. 
yeah. in a person's you know private life, and they don't. If you live in a in a subculture within the church that we don't sin, yeah. we at least nothing serious like marriage problems. We're not yeah. going to get you know all the all the things that we seem to have these uh, uh, stereotypes for, or uh, I, I'm not getting the right word, but mm. how do you? How do you describe or how do you break someone from that? Uh, how do you break a church community from that stigma? That's a good question. I'll answer a little, but I want to hear from you, Bo, as well, because this is like what you've built your entire ministry over is the stigmatization yeah. of especially sexual issues. Yeah, and you can always go to runninglight.org and and check out all the work what we've done there. And again, the podcast on these subjects, they're very, everything that we're talking about, we've done podcast yeah. after podcast, yeah. just just really delved in deep into this. But um, let me answer this question and then I'll get back to the original question yeah. real quick and just kind of finish that up. Yeah. But the best thing to do is if, you know, is the way you answer Adrian's question about, um, you know, having a church culture to be like this, everybody from the top down in ministry has to be vulnerable to their, has to be open about their sin. Yeah. That's the only way it's going to happen. It's the only way. I, I would, you know, uh, you know, there ain't no easy way. Yeah. The, the way, the way to have a church that is going to be dealing with these things properly is we have to, from the top down, um, in leadership, be very open and honest about our struggles and sin and what we do about them, mm. you know, and that kind of thing. So if we struggle with lustful inclinations then we need to admit that we struggle with lustful inclinations. Mm. If we struggle with greed, if we struggle with intense pride issues, if we struggle, which all of it stems from pride, you know, mm. ultimately, but, um, you know, we, we just have to be very clear, you know, and just say, hey, this is, you know, uh, you know, running light wasn't started because um, I am a, I don't sin. Right. You know, running light ministries was started because I'm a sinner. Yeah. And that lust is something that is in my heart and I need to be around people. And so that is why that started. Yeah, absolutely. So, and as an associate pastor, you know, you can easily, you know, go, well, man, I want people to see me as wise and I want people to see me as smart and, and, and yeah, you can do that, but that is what the Pharisees did. Right. You, you are exactly in the ballpark hmm. of you are in the place of rejecting Messiah. Right. And that's 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 strong words. But you are meaning if Jesus were to come here today and he asks the same questions he did back in those days, you know, you know, you know, we we you know, we would be acting in the Pharisee role. Right. You know, we would think that, oh yeah, we're pretty good. Yeah. We're doing pretty Oh yeah, I got some things, but nothing really serious. Yeah. You know, I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. Right. You know, so that's that's what I mean. Top down, you got to, everybody's got to be vulnerable. It doesn't mean you go to the pulpit. We have talks about this. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean you go to the pulpit and just, you know, vomit, you know, <laughs> <laughs> nothing like that. Yeah. But we have to just make it clear mm -hmm. that we are needing Christ just like anybody. Is it fair mm -hmm. to say that this is a safe place to talk about what you struggle with? Yeah. That's and what it should be. It why should be. why mm -hmm. isn't it in so many, why are people so, I, I even went and visited a church where there was a moral failure from someone who in leadership mm -hmm. and they were going to go through a disciplinary process, but 
they stopped going to that church by the lead. They made them go to another campus where all the <laughs> sinful Christians are. Right. And I just, I was shocked to hear that, wait a minute, just because everybody, just because he confessed his son publicly, he therefore now needs to attend like the sinner's church. Yeah. Where all the people who didn't get caught or didn't confess, he yeah. didn't get caught. He just, he said, hey, you know. Yeah. And it wasn't even that big of an issue, but it was something that still he was like in in leadership. And I, I just couldn't understand why someone, I understand that, you know, people might, oh, that's the guy that did the thing, right? <laughs> but is that, does that seem as off to you as it does to me? Yeah, no, it does. So in Christianity right now, there's a reason why there's such a heavy pull towards progressive Christianity. Uh, the reason is, is because a lot of people, especially people in my generation, the younger generation, they have been sickened by the hypocrisy that exists within Christendom, right? So they exist in these conservative churches that have these high lofty ideals and morality that they preach often and emphatically. But the kids of those parents know, my parents don't do any of this. Who they are in church is a complete fabrication. It's completely hypocritical of who they really are. And they start seeing behind the scenes and they see the church leadership and they become sickened by it, and they leave their faith, they deconstruct their faith, and they move into progressive Christianity or away from Christendom altogether. And yeah, and, be- and, and the problem isn't so much that there's hypocrisy, quote, in the person's life, right. in the leader's life. Or, well, let me say it this way. The yeah. problem is, is that there is hypocrisy. Right. And what I mean what I mean by that, the problem is, is there's not just admitting of the moral failure. Right. Like, so instead of the pastor saying, I shouldn't be living in this house. Right. This is way too expensive. Right. You know, or I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't squander, you know, or I'm getting paid too high and I know I'm that, you know what I mean? Those kind of ideas or, you know, the kids grow up and they go, man, I don't know if my, you know, because, uh, because we try to say, oh no, I'm really doing, you know, I'm right. really strong as a Christian. We scripturalize our moral failures. Then we scripturalize our moral failures. Yeah. Like kids grow up and they see that. Yeah. And so that's what I think you mean by Not, getting sick that's, and That's it. exactly what I mean. And so it's like the, the excesses of the progressive church, the progressive movement is a doing away with all standards and morals. The excesses of the conservative church is a hypocrisy towards the morals and standards. The ideal church that God wants us to live within, and none of us do, but we're, we should strive for it, is the church that acknowledges equally the standards and moral obligations of our personal life and equally understands and expresses our failure to live up to those standards. That's the healthy church, the church that is like, we should not be doing this, but this is stuff that I struggle with, like the Apostle Paul. There are things that I know not to do, but I find myself practicing these things. That's the healthiest church. That's the church that's getting things worked on. Um, Not as a justification for bad behavior, but as an admission that this is the real world that we live in. Exactly. That these are the excesses that I struggle with. These are the failures that I have. And this is what I need to work on. And again, that brings us back to the point of accountability. What is the purpose of confession? Well, it's to humble myself in front of my uh, fellow congregants, the people that I trust to be a part of my spiritual journey towards God. But it's also to allow them to hold me accountable to what I'm trying to become. Right? I'm seeking to be like Christ. I am seeking to fulfill what he has laid out for me to do in my personal life. And I recognize in myself a frailty. And I need people to encourage that mobility, that to encourage that spirituality, to encourage that work that the Holy Spirit's doing in me, 
to hold me accountable to the the statements of faith that I've made. That's what I need. And that goes into what we're talking about about, about marriage. It's it's not just that people don't want to be held accountable in realms of their personal life. I think you're very right, Adrian, when you say this is a symptomatic of a greater frailty within the church as a whole, that it's not just marital difficulties that people are unwilling to talk about, it's difficulties in general. And that's a really negative thing. So in other words, the church no longer acts and functions as a bulwark that helps you fight against the excesses of your life. The church actually encourages hypocrisy and therefore a feeding of your negative ideas and your negative behaviors, right? That's that's the negative movement that we've made. So I, I think that's really important to understand. Yeah, and I think, I think you know, just when I—and it's all fairly anecdotal in a lot of ways just by our life stories, but— mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of a lot of young people, you know, they they kind of see through a lot of things, mm. you know, and young people tend to do that. They see if you're really real. Yeah. And you might not have an issue with sexual immorality as a leader in the church and and you preach heavy against sexual immorality. Yeah. But a young person will see that you have other issues. Right. You know, that you have other things and they'll see that there is in a sense a favoritism. Right. That goes on, and these things uh, definitely have crystallized in the culture, mm. and um, and uh, it's it's one where you know people, younger people, certainly are making decisions with their feet. Yeah, you know, in so a lot of ways. So to kind of go back to our original question, it's like I I totally understand why people have lost a lot of their kind of uh, the glory of the marital institution has lost a lot of its fervor in the last couple of years, last couple of decades. I I get why that's happening. But the solution can't be, well, we throw out the institution. Mm. The solution should be, what's wrong with the institution? How do we go back to it? Uh, you know, I was just talking to you guys before we started the show. I finished a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. Excellent book. But one of the things that he, he mentions about our current culture that's so unique is that we're a transgressive culture. We're actually not progressive. So a transgressive culture is one that instead of looking at these are the the taboos and the moralities of my culture, I want to understand them in a modern way. I want to try to progress a little bit in the way we understand these taboos, the way we understand these standards. He says that that's actually not what we're trying to do. We're trying to throw them out in their entirety. Mm -hmm. So when people are saying, oh, here are these difficulties with marriage, they're not giving viable solutions. They're not saying, therefore, this is how we revivify the marital institution. This is how we strengthen it. This is how we make it better. It's a, let's get rid of it yeah. because there are these issues in it. Let's just throw it out, you know, because it's obviously not helping anyone. They're stigmatizing family. They're stigmatizing, you know, rearing of children. They've expanded the definition of marriage. I was listening to Sean McDowell Mm. discuss with, uh, what was his name? Brandon Uh, Roberts. Brandon Robertson. Yeah. Mm. Or is it Roberts? Yeah. Robertson. Brandon Robertson's a progressive Christian was at Moody Mm. was obviously struggling with same-sex attraction and decided to go and become a complete, like you described, deconstruct, reevaluate their faith. And rather than tossing the faith out altogether, they're just simply redefining it. Right. To the point where he, in in the interview, which was a really good discussion, I'd encourage you to check it out, but it's yeah. uh, Sean McDowell on his YouTube channel having an hour-long interview with this progressive Christian pastor who is in a same-sex marriage, I believe, or a relationship, and and advocates for it and says that, no, I don't believe uh, 
What was interesting is I thought he was going to reinterpret those passages that define marriage. Yeah. But he says, no, they're I'm just wrong. I'm not. He just <laughs> yeah. said they're just incorrect. Yeah, the Bible got wrong. it wrong. And Jesus made mistakes. Jesus had to even correct his mistake. Yeah. And uh, it was quite, quite shocking. And uh, how do you, especially in, on the heels of this new law that was passed mm. to codify uh, the expansion of the definition of marriage, how do we, I mean, there's always that moment and I'm dealing with this in various extended family situations and relationships where their definition of marriage is completely expanded and I would not be a part of this union at all as a believer. Yeah. But there's that cringe moment. And culturally, it's it's such a stigma to have Christian values or have that definition of marriage as being you know a monogamous relationship between a man and a woman and for life and to hold those values without being stigmatized as a bigot, as hateful, as the most awful human being ever to exist on the par with, you know, Hitler. <laughs> and, you know, you, how do you communicate powerfully at the same time breaking down some of those uh, stereotypical stigmas that come with that? I just, I've, I've, really wrestled with it and I've not come up with a good answer. Well, I, I like what you said before the show that when you talk to people like that, you just agree with them. So yeah, just go with <laughs> it. Just go with it. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, we can. Let, let me, yeah. let's first though, let's answer this question. Cause we, we want to make sure we answer the person's questions about, you know, what does the Bible say about premarital sex? Yeah. And, and, you know, I just, you know, when I look at the context of John chapter eight, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees Yeah. and the Pharisees say to him, um, or, or this is kind of it. In verse 39, they make this claim, Abraham is our father, they answered. And so they, they're, they're boasting in their religion and uh, their status with God because of their um, ancestral background with Moses yeah. and Abraham. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own, you are doing the things your own father does. Um, and, and they say, we are not illegitimate children or we are not, I love some of the translations that say, um, you know, um, we have not been born of sexual immorality. Mm. You know, we are, we are of one, uh, one father and that's our God. And, and I, I kind of like that the you know what they're saying to Jesus is hey like we're not born of sexual immorality right and it, and it, and it really seems like a pun you know to Jesus like a jab at him right well it was assumed wasn't it that uh, Mary had an illegitimate relationship yeah and so so yeah, when people we, weren't buying the the Holy Spirit <laughs> yeah, right. story yeah so the reputation obviously lived on even after thirty years yeah so the idea is that for sure in the culture having sex before marriage yeah you know was considered wrong right it w so we know that and you could see like for, i said you for, could see very clearly as to why mm -hmm. they thought that way from these principles that paul lays out in first corinthians 6 and and again paul's not making up anything um it was understood by the israelites that the relationship that the jews had with god was symbolic of the relationship that god had with his people right so yeah. uh, Paul's not making up anything. He's just pulling from his past in the Pharisaic, Pharisaical sect mm -hmm. and showing how it applies to the church in the New Covenant. But so you see these, these principles, once again, are sexual relationships. They're not 
for the purpose of making us happy or sexually fulfilled. Therefore, the purpose of glorifying God, of mm-hmm. showing a very particular piece of his nature, right. that he not only is one, he is three in one, he has a complex unity within himself, that we can actually exemplify in the act of sex and marriage as a whole, that we are two individual beings and yet we become one flesh in the act of sex, we become one flesh in the institution of marriage, right? We're, we're symbolically showing God's glory by doing these things, but it also shows, again, God's dedication to his people. Right, God does not dwell with His people until they have the Mount Sinai covenantal agreement. Right, so Moses goes up. There's a covering. They make the ascent to the covenant, and then God starts to dwell with them in the tabernacle that they mm-hmm. erect. Why doesn't God have the tabernacle built before Mount Sinai? He could have. It's because there's a symbol there. God commits, and then He indwells. He dwells with. We commit, and then we dwell with. That's the whole point. Mm, yeah. Now, there, there's a pragmatic argument I can make, and that is that every study that's ever been done on couples that live together before they get married shows that you are way more likely to divorce if you live mm-hmm. together before you get married. But that's not really, as Christians, that's not what we argue from. We don't argue from pure, uh, just and pragmatism just means logic, just it's reasonable that, that you shouldn't do it. Um, we argue from the fact that we believe that marriage has a very high and holy calling. We're supposed to reflect mm-hmm. God. There's a very particular picture that's supposed to be reflected, and I'm seeking to do that. Um, so the Bible doesn't—I think that Exodus 22 gets about as close as you're going to get to an outright forbiddance of premarital sex, but the principles, I think, are, are pretty crystal clear. Absolutely. Yeah, I think of First Thessalonians 2, I think it's chapter 4, that talks about let us not— um, 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 be sexually immoral like the pagans, yeah. those mm. who do not know God. Yeah. And there Paul makes it real distinct that there <clears throat> is a difference. There should be a difference in the Christian's sexual ethic right. mm. than the outside world. Yeah. And so and our culture doesn't really want to hear that. No, not at all. And and this is where we get to the, you know, how to argue, how to mm-hmm. discuss right, right. these topics. I'm going to put up your website too, just to yeah, Let viewers know that uh, to come check out the website's called a better a better pleasure, and you can uh, the the website address is actually uh, betterpleasure.net. So check yeah. it out. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, check it out, and we talk about a lot about these topics. But uh, yeah, before the show, I think a good way to argue sometimes these these topics of sexuality and you know what we can do and what we can't do or how to you know talk about issues is just go with it. Like sometimes the argument that I find best is just to say, if someone says, well, you know, you know, why can't I do this? Just say, well, yeah, you can. And, and like, you know, and just say, you know, you can do anything you want. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Whatever you want, whatever you want to do sexually, you do, you know, because the person's going to have to go, well, (laughs) <laughs> like you can everything, everything? I want. yeah well you know because it's like see see everybody's make what, what we're trying to help people see is that everybody's making an argument right. for a right or wrong mm-hmm. everybody is right of course yeah. it, it, it's just all we're dinking around with is who is the ultimate authority on what is right, yeah. the yeah. right or wrong right yeah, that's how i usually approach it is i'll say something yeah. along the lines of okay well They'll say, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with 
behavior X or lifestyle X or whatever it is. And I say, well, first tell me what's wrong with anything. Why is anything wrong with anything? Just yeah. murder. Pick the worst thing you can think of. Right. You know, murdering kids or, you know, harming children or school shootings. You know, that's some of the things that are like the most heinous crimes that we can think of is yeah. when you uh, damage children. Okay, so tell me why that's wrong. Hmm. Give me the ethic. And so, you know, every moral thinking has to have a point of reference. What yeah. are you referring to? What is your authority or your foundation other than your intuition that gives you the right to say that this is wrong? And that it's, you know, obviously it's legislatively illegal, but then you get into those moral areas that that are not illegal, but yet people consider immoral. And so, for example, adultery is not illegal. You can commit adultery, but yet culturally we still seem to live by the idea that uh, a partner cheating on a partner, whether they're married or not, is wrong. Well, that, we use the word cheating. We still use the word cheating. We're still using the word wrong. Mm-hmm. We're still using the, yeah. you know, we're still in the same paradigm. But they can't you know? tell you why, and that's a good tactic, is if you can't get someone to explain yeah. why on something you do agree is wrong, then how am I supposed to agree with you on things that we disagree that are right or wrong? Yeah. Now, I like to answer one of your questions where you say, you know, how, how do we deal with a world that says that uh, we're expanding the definition of marriage? Because one of the arguments I had is that if we're going to be a transgressive culture that just says we're not expanding the definition, we're just getting rid of it. Some would argue and say, well, no, 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 what, this, uh, what the Senate just did, what the government just did is they expanded the definition of marriage. We live in a modern day. Why can't men uh, marrying men be a part of that institution? Why can't women be, marrying women be part of the institution. So I'm going to go back to a quote from Chesterton. Uh, he wrote a GK. book called G.K. Chesterton. Uh, he wrote a book called Orthodoxy, which is really, really excellent. Uh, and he has this great quote. Me and Bo love this quote. So he's talking about uh, the modern day and how they're expanding definitions. And he says this, the moment you step into a world of facts, you step into a world of limits. You can free things from alien or accidental laws, but not from the laws of their own nature. You may, if you like, free a tiger from his bars, but do not free him from his stripes. Do not free a camel of the burden of his hump. You may be freeing him from being a camel altogether. Do not go about as a demagogue encouraging triangles to break out of their prison of three sides. (laughs) If a triangle breaks out of its three sides, its life comes to a lamentable end. Somebody wrote a work called The Love of Triangles. (laughs) I never read it, but I am sure that if triangles were ever loved, they were loved for being triangular. <laughs> That's right. right. So now what he's saying is that there is certain, if I expand a definition, I might actually be destroying the definition itself. Yeah. If something, if something's, uh, if something's not man-made, if it's something of nature. Right. And so think about it this way. It's like, why does the new definition, why is the new definition of marriage? Why am I arguing that it's like expanding the definition of a triangle to have four-sided shapes as well? Uh, as opposed to just saying, well, a triangle could be isosceles or it could be scalene. You know, why does it have to only be right? Uh, here's here's the why. When you're talking about marriage, there is a societal implication of marriage. There is a religious implication of marriage. And there is a committal component to marriage, right? Those are, you can argue about how those things fit into one another. But the societal implication of marriage is that a man and a woman, by definition, it's the only type of sexual relationship that is possible of creating new life. Therefore, the government does have a vested interest in protecting that institution and creating boundaries around it. 
every other thing that you want to mention, man, man, woman, woman, uh, man, dog, right? They don't have the potential of creating new life. And therefore, because they don't have that potentiality as a standard, there is no reason to draw lines around them and protect them. If they want to have sexual relations with one another, they were always doing it. But when you're defining marriage, you're defining an act, you're defining an institution that has a societal role. There's also religious implications. You could say, well, religion also gives us an idea or an ideal of what correct sexual intimacy is all about. What are the limits and the bounds towards it? So if you're going to say, well, we're going to throw off religious uh, religious inclinations towards sexual congress, as Bo said, okay, fine. Well, then why don't we throw off all the religious implications of sex? Bestiality was practiced by all of our ancestors, right? If you go back far enough, pedophilia was practiced by all what? of our ancestors, I can't right? believe that. <laughs> Polygamy, <laughs> polyandry, right? All these things were practiced by ancestors. So why not just blow up all of them, right? If you're going to throw out the religious implications, give me an argument for why these things are morally reprehensible if you're going to throw out all these others. But it seems like a targeted attack. So if you're going to throw out the religious, you've thrown out marriage itself. And then there's also a committal aspect. When people started saying love is love after the Obergfell decision, which was the Supreme Court decision that legalized gay marriage, you have to understand love is love is essentially saying that there's an idea that marriage is all about drawing bounds around love. Well, if love is all there is to marriage, then what does the marriage contract add to love? Right. If that's all it is, yeah. And then why even is, do it? Then why even do it? Mm-hmm. Right. If, what What am I doing by walking down the aisle if all I'm saying to my wife is I love you? Right. I could say that without a marriage contract. And when I stop loving her, don't I have the right to divorce her? I mean, that's why we have no fault divorce. So when we're expanding the definition, quote unquote, we're actually deteriorating the definition. We're actually getting rid of it. There now is no more marriage because all it is, all you're saying is, well, it's two people who love each other. Okay. Well, if it's two people who love each other, then there is no institution, right? There's there's no reason for the government to protect it. There's no reason for other people to recognize it. You're not asking for societal uh, accountability. You're not asking for a societal contributions through procreation. You're not asking for religious contribution through adhering to laws that were given through God. You're not asking for any type of commitment that transcends mm. your loving feelings and emotions in a given moment. Yeah. Right? You're just deteriorating all those and, things. And what's really good, what I think what's really good, and we brought up Jordan Peterson's argument on marriage and, and how why it's so good. And, and it's it's good to remember that argument of mm. that, you know, when something is has has stood the test of time, mm. there's a reason. Yeah. And you know, if technology if our technology today is one of the only reasons why things function, mm. like why people can function is because of technology, meaning the only way you can be a family is through technology. Right. Man, that's really putting a lot of pressure on technology, <laughs> yeah. you know? It's like, you know, think about it. You, you, you get in a plane, you go fly, the plane crashes, you guys live, some of you live, right? Well, there's no technology on that island. You know, you, you know, how you live at that stage of the game is very important. If you want to continue progeny, have family, you know, the way you set up your workforce, building a workforce, everything is going to, then we start going, oh, I see why committal marriage is important. Yeah. Family unit. I see why family Mm -hmm. units are important. I see why protecting of women especially is important, you know? Things that have been very much lost through our current 
society, mm. but yet still so true. We all know it's so important to protect people. Mm. You know, um, we still all know these things are are very much valid, mm. and that's why I think you have culture that wants kind of Christianity, the values of it. Mm. They want it, but they want it kind of do it their way. Right. Well, you know, <clears throat> that's a good lead into one of the questions we got on our YouTube channel. Uh, Dwayne wanted to know, he said he loves our broadcast. And is it okay for people who believe in God to go against a dictator nation, even if that dictator is putting God's ideas on people? So in other words, there's a dictator. Should I oppose him? Even if he's proposing a theocracy, so to speak, like we're going to, we're a Christian or an Islamic nation. We're going to enforce our religious values, our moral values, but I'm going to do it with the sword. I'm going to enforce it from my religious perspective. Is that okay? Should believers accept this, or should believers be opposed to a dictatorship-led theocracy? Historically, the Christian church has always opposed it. Uh, Going all the way back to the Middle Ages, Christianity has always historically opposed theocracies. It doesn't mean that they haven't been instituted. doesn't mean that they haven't been followed, and it doesn't mean that they haven't held power for long periods of time. But the church, Christendom as a whole, has always opposed it. Now, there's a very specific reason as to why. Christians don't believe in the nature of religion as it's understood in most other faith systems. So in most other faith systems, it's just about what you do. Christianity uniquely believes that the central tenet, the central commandment, as Jesus gives it, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love requires choice. If you do not have the freedom to reject God, you also don't have the freedom to choose God, and therefore you don't have the freedom to love God. So theocracies have always been opposed by Christians for that reason. If you mandate and you let and you specifically remove people's capacity to choose their faith in God, then you are essentially removing their ability to love God, and therefore you're actually destroying Christianity, not building it. So uh, Charlemagne was one of the early examples where he started to try to institute a theocracy over the Saxons and the Jutes as he conquered them, and the Christians opposed him. They were like, this is not good. They're pagan, yes, but you shouldn't do it. His solution was, okay, well, if I believe that God is true, then the person who is most likely to believe in God is the most free person. Therefore, I'm going to educate these people as best as I can and give them the ability to choose Christianity. That was the solution he came to, and most Christians after him followed his lead. They're like, that's why, that's why Christians, wherever they go, they, they put up schools. They educate. There's a reason why there's that pattern. Yeah, and the re- and the reason why, and Blaise Pascal talked about this in the 1600s, yep. but and that is the gospel is the one thing that can regulate people better than anything. Yeah. With he says with in- exact precision, you know, <laughs> you know, meaning you know the gospel of Jesus Christ humbles the proud mm-hmm. and it lifts up the depressed. Yeah. And so there's this work of the gospel that regulates us. So if we're proud, we read the gospel and we go, "Woo, I need help." Mm-hmm. You know, it 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 humbles us. But if we're depressed and lowly and melancholy and struggling with our depravity, mm-hmm. we read the gospel and it lifts us up to incredible heights. Right. And so, you know, that is why Christian education is so vital. Yeah. Because with with that because you, you know, the most scariest thing to an authoritative dictator mm. is someone knowing Jesus Christ right. mm. and believing in Jesus yeah. Christ. 
because that is the most freest person, yeah. right? And that's one who's self-regulated, yeah. right? They don't need that outside source yeah. telling them don't murder or don't do this. Wasn't it one of the founding fathers that said that a if we if you strip religion from the United States, yeah. because we're our whole foundation is a self-governed people. It's John Adams. That you won't have. Yeah, he said he yeah. said our constitutional democracy only works for religious and educated people. Yeah. So in other words, what he's saying is that self-government, right? Not having an authoritative uh, type of, you know, demo- I mean, I'm not sorry, not democracy, but demagoguery, right? Yeah. An actual like ty- tyrannical reign. The only way to get away from that and allow people to actually rule themselves is if they can rule themselves. Yeah, because <laughs> like you, you've had churches in the yeah. past, of course, kind of turn into like a theocracy. Right. Right. You right. have the dark ages where, of course, the Catholic church is running the show right. in a lot of ways. And it's a very theocratic you know, set up government, right. but yet I wouldn't say it was very good. Yeah, and, and one thing <laughs> and that a lot of people leave out is, is, as I said before, the church, the congregants were opposing the church from doing that. Yeah. Mm. So it's people make it out as like all the Christians were doing it. It's like, no, 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 you had governmental bad actors that were doing something and weaponizing the military to do it, but you also had a lot of congregants opposing it vehemently and trying to get away from it. Yeah, and this is why people yeah. like Wycliffe or um, Tyndale were so important because they were educating the common person right. in the Holy Scriptures. Well, that's a that's a heavy one. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's really hey, good. No and, uh, thank you for thank tuning you, in. Thank you, Peter. That's why you come here, <laughs> no. to get the heaviness. <laughs> uh, and thanks for tuning in. If we didn't get your question, uh, we'll have it in our files here and get to it uh, as soon as we can. But uh, thanks for tuning in. We'll be here yeah. same place, same time tomorrow. God yeah. bless you. Yeah, God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.